This will be our last sermon in the book of Genesis. Uh, we've done 10 now, so we'll be taking break after this for the Holy Week, uh, and then we will resume as soon as we have occasion to do so. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. These are the words of the living God. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the salvation, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for gathering us together once again to hear your word and to be instructed by you. Help me to get out of the way today, O Lord, so we can do just that. Pray, God, that you would come powerfully and wonderfully in our midst and speak to us today through this text. Help us to understand it, to know it, to learn it, and to walk in it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to look at the story of Joseph. And while we do that, I want you to imagine that you're watching a play. And during this play, there are five scenes. And each time one of the scenes closes, the curtain closes, and another one, uh, and it opens back up, and we are at a different stage in our story. In a nutshell, this is a story today of blessing through tragedy. Blessing through tragedy. And we will see that it is sometimes through our tragedies that God brings about the greatest blessings in our lives and in the lives of others who are around us. Joseph begins in the pit, but he ends up on the throne. So how did he get there? Let's take a look at scene one, which begins back in Genesis chapter 37. So if you have your Bibles, go there with me to Genesis chapter 37. And if not, you can just listen along. Or if you prefer to listen, that's fine too. But we're going to look at the story of Joseph. So this is scene one, act one. Um, Genesis 37, verses 1 through 8. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilphah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made for him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to the brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. 
His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So Jacob had two sons by Rachel, the woman that he loved, Joseph and Benjamin. And when we are introduced to Joseph, he is only 17 years old. But by this point, he had become a wise and faithful steward in his father's house, and his father was well pleased with him. Joseph's father put him in charge of the family household. He would watch over the flocks, and he would give reports to his father about them. And he watched over his brothers and told his father about their behaviors. And his father actually made him a robe to signify this authority that he had. This is this coat spoken of in the passage. And remember, we have said that clothing in the Bible represents authority oftentimes. And his brothers hated him for these things. Uh, They were jealous of him, and they despised him, especially when he would bring a bad report of them back to his father. Moreover, Joseph was a seer. Uh, That is, he was a prophet. Uh, God would give him dreams by which he was able to look into the future. So he could tell the future through these dreams. And we see here in our text today that he has a dream about his family coming down to bow before him. So what do the brothers do the first chance they are given? Well, they try to do away with Joseph, of course. They do not want his authority over them. So, in the beginning of our story, we see that Joseph is an obedient son, a wise leader, a visionary, and a judge. And for these things, his brothers hate him. Scene two. So now we're moving out of scene one. Curtain closes, opens back up, stage is set. In scene two, we see that Joseph is sent by his brothers, by his father, or excuse me, Joseph is sent to his brothers by his fathers to evaluate their actions. And then we see their conspiracy to kill him and to do away with him. We see that in verses 12 through 16. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I have heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. When Joseph's brothers see him coming from afar, they determine that they are going to kill him right away. Uh, They do not want to submit to his authority, as I've said. Um, When they see him coming, they actually say in the Hebrew, here comes this ruler dreamer. 
So they acknowledge that their father has set Joseph up as a ruler over them, but they refuse to submit to the authority that's been placed over them by their father, and instead they decide to kill this ruler dreamer, Joseph. Well, some of you may remember the story. After they strip Joseph of his coat of authority, they throw him into the pit and they leave him there to die. And one of his brothers uh, actually comes up with the idea not to kill him and leave him for dead. Judah says, let not his blood be on our hands. Instead, we'll sell him off to the Ishmaelite slave traders. And they thought that that was a good idea, so that's what they decide to do. And Joseph is sold off to slavery in Egypt. So at the end of scene two, Joseph is thrown down into the pit of death. He's gone down into a death-like experience, and then he is sold off into slavery. In scene three, we see what the Ishmaelites do with Joseph. In scene three, we see that he is sold off into Egypt to become a slave there. Again, Joseph is going through the same trial as many of his ancestors. He is going to go down to Egypt and be tested, just as his fathers have before him. And he is sold off to Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's guard down in Egypt. And guess what? God was with Joseph while he was in Potiphar's house, because again, Joseph is God's chosen man. So God blesses Joseph, and he prospers everything that he does. And as a result, Potiphar notices. If you look at chapter 39, uh, verses 3 through 6, we see that. Chapter 39, verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So what happened here? Well, this is the old promise that was made to Abraham, that those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. Joseph was obedient and submissive to his master that the Lord had placed over him. He was not bitter about his bondage or his servitude, but he was obedient, just as he had always been. And therefore, the Lord prospered him and gave him dominion. We have said that the only way to exercise dominion in this world is to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us, and Joseph understands that. So he's submissive and obedient, even in his master's house, and as a result, he prospers. He's made the right-hand man of Potiphar in his house. Get this. He has rule over this man's house while he is a slave. He's a slave in this man's house, okay? But he has rule over his house. 
So this is obviously the work of the Lord elevating Joseph to a place of rule in Egypt. So what happens next? Well, some of you remember the story. Potiphar's wife tries to take advantage of Joseph and get her to lay with him. But Joseph, being an upright and holy man, refuses to do so. He will not lie with this seductive, uh, adulterous, harlotress, um, and he will not um, dishonor his master by taking his wife. If you look at verse 11, you see that, chapter 39, but one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came in to me to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So the word garment here is mentioned six times in the Hebrew, and this is what they would do in the ancient culture to emphasize something. Today we put things in quotations, we make it bold, we underline it, we put it in parentheses, whatever. In the Hebrew, they would repeat it. So the text is emphasizing the fact that this woman is trying to strip the authority that Joseph was given away from him. Now, because of what has happened here, the master has to throw Joseph into prison. But I don't think that the master believed his wife. Um, Because Joseph should have received a much more severe punishment for what he was accused of here. He could have even been put to death, but he is only thrown into prison prison, and it's not a dungeon at all. It's actually the prison where the king keeps his servants, which we'll see in the next text. The king throws his cupbearer, in the next scene, the king throws his cupbearer and his chief baker down there. But nevertheless, I think we must keep in focus the fact that God is protecting Joseph in all of this and preserving him. And guess what? While Joseph is in prison, God shows him favor once again in the sight of the keeper. And Joseph becomes the ruler, even in the prison. Look at verses 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, He was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Even when he is thrown back into prison and this small glimmer of light that he began to see is snuffed out, Joseph continues on. Because Joseph understands how God works in the world, and therefore he presses on submitting to the rulers that God has placed over him, 
knowing that he will once again see the light of victory. And boy, does he. Even when he is in prison, God makes him the man in charge. Even in prison. So at the end of scene three, we see that Joseph's faithful, obedient submission to the authority that has been placed over him caused him to make progress in the world and to exercise dominion and authority in every place that he goes. Moving from scene three, the curtain closes, it opens back up. Here we have another scene, scene four. And scene four, Joseph is elevated to the place of judge and king. Apparently, Pharaoh had gotten sick of the old guard. He got tired of the old administration, and he decides to throw his chief baker and cupbearer down into prison with Joseph. And you must understand that these are highly trusted men in Egypt because if you wanted to kill the king, all you had to do was poison his food. So these men hold high places of authority in Egypt. It's possible that the chief baker was even in charge of all the land and what happened with the crops and so forth. And the cup in Egypt is connected with divination and the wise men who would counsel the king. So the cupbearer was quite possibly the king's counselor. And these men are thrown down into the prison with Joseph. Well, as the story goes, the two men have a dream. And guess what? Joseph is able to interpret their dream. Remember, Joseph is a prophet, and God speaks to him in dreams. And so they tell him their dreams, and he basically says that the cupbearer is going to be elevated back to his place of authority in a couple of days, and that the baker is going to be put to death. And he tells the cupbearer, or excuse me, he tells the cupbearer to remember me when Pharaoh restores you to your place of authority and ask him to get me out of prison. And of course, just as Joseph said it would, it comes to pass, and the cupbearer uh, cup is elevated back to his position, but he forgets about Joseph. But that is until Pharaoh has a dream, and nobody in all of the land can interpret it. Then the cupbearer remembers Joseph. There's a guy down in prison who can interpret dreams. And so Joseph is called up out of prison to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he basically tells him that his dream means that there is a coming famine in the not-too-distant future. It's going to last for seven years. So for the next seven years, you need to store up grain in Egypt so that you can survive when this famine comes on the land. And guess what? The interpretation pleases Pharaoh, and he exalts Joseph in his house. Look at verses 37 through 44, chapter 41. Chapter 41, starting in verse 37. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his right hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in his garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph is made second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And Pharaoh basically tells Joseph that his people are going to kiss the ground that he walks on. They're going to do whatever he asks them to do now. And he puts this signet ring on Joseph's hand, uh, which signifies that Joseph is now going to make all the decrees in the land. And they will have to come up to Joseph for approval if they want to get anything done. And he will seal it with that ring. And Pharaoh also clothes Joseph with a new robe of authority. It's a robe of fine linen. And wherever Joseph goes, people are told to bow the knee. It's interesting. This is Joseph's resurrection. Joseph goes from the pit of destruction, essentially, to the throne of the king. He goes from a time of death and bondage. His whole life up until this point can be described as a time of death and bondage. He lived in pits and in prisons and under servitude. But now... Pharaoh has made Joseph lord over all of Egypt. And not only over all of Egypt, but over all of the world. Because, remember, there's a famine that was going to come, so now all the world is going to have to come up to Joseph in order to be fed. Genesis 41.57 reads, you don't have to go there, 41.57 says, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe, over all the earth. Joseph has experienced death and resurrection. He has experienced a death and a resurrection, and now he has been made Lord of all the earth. Does that story sound familiar to you? But wait, there's more. Not done with Joseph yet. At the end of scene four, Joseph has been made king and ruler, and God has trained him for this position through his life of suffering and servitude. Because of Joseph's faithfulness and obedience, no matter what, he has been exalted here to this high place. Here God begins fulfilling the prophecy that he gave to Abraham back in the beginning, which said that he would be a father of many nations. There's another passage that says Joseph was like a father to Pharaoh. So God is beginning to fulfill that promise that he made to Abraham here through Joseph when he sets him over all of Egypt. Let's not forget about Joseph's brothers who had sold him into slavery. Right? They're, they're all still down there or up there in Canaan starving. So guess what? They're now going to have to come down to Egypt and beg who for some food. Joseph. God does not raise his 
people to positions of power and authority just so that they can have power and authority, but rather he puts them there that they might be a blessing to his people and to the world. And that is what we see in scene five. They come down just as they, I mean, they were compelled. They had no other choice. Uh, They come with their father and all of the brothers, and Joseph is able to provide food for his brothers so that they can be preserved and kept alive and the covenant people of God can continue on the earth and God can continue to bless the earth through them. When they come down, Joseph and Pharaoh give his family the best land in all of Egypt to dwell in. Goshen, it's pasture land, it's green lands. They get to go up there and live. And they're sustained by the food that Joseph has stored up. And after uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, has died, the brothers are worried that he is going to come back and exact some vengeance upon them. You know, a little payback for all of the years in, in the pit and in the prison. And that's where we find the text that we began with today. So if you turn back to Genesis chapter 50, we'll finish up. And we'll, lead, uh, we'll read verses 15 through 21 this time. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So I guess Joseph's brothers were going to come and bow down to him after all, just as he had said back at the very beginning. And he says to them, you know, don't worry, brothers. Don't worry about all that stuff. You know, when I was in the pit and in the prison, all those things that you put me through, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that is not, you, you meant it for evil and God used it for good. The Hebrew text says, you meant it for evil and God meant it for good. Same word. So how can this be? How is it that God uses the evil acts of men to bring about his good intention. How can he do this? Brothers and sisters, this is how God works in the world. God determines sometimes to bring about his good and perfect purposes through the evil acts of wicked men. And thank God that he does. Because through it, he brings about the salvation of many, just as we see here in our story today. 
Can you think of another time when God used the wicked, evil acts of men to redeem the world? I mean, what is the the most horrid, awful, abominable, terrible sin that you can think of in all the Bible? Well, it's the murder of Christ, is it not? The murder of God's only Son, the murder of the Savior of the world. But yet the Bible says that God predestined that very thing. God predetermined that the cross of Christ would take place before the foundation of the world, Acts 2.23. God determined that evil men would take their evil hands and that they would slay Christ upon the cross. God determined that. And He determined that through that wicked deed, through their hands, through their wicked hands, as they were nailing Him to the tree, that He would redeem the world through it. So do you see that? That is our story today. Joseph's brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Brothers and sisters, this is our story. This is the story of Jesus Christ. Who are the brothers that put Jesus to death? Who are the ones who had Him put to death? Well, that's Israel, right? But who actually nailed Him to the cross? The Romans, the Gentiles. That's us. And yet God decided to save us through it anyway. And after Jesus has experienced His resurrection and exaltation, what happens? All the world begins coming to Him. And then Israel becomes jealous and they come up to Him as well. It's the same story all over again. Joseph is, Jesus is another Joseph, a greater Joseph. Because of his faithfulness and obedience, because of his willingness to submit to his father's will and to place him, place himself under authority in order to carry out his purpose, and because he was faithful to the death, even the most wretched death, the death of a cross, God has highly exalted him and given Jesus the name by which every knee will bow. Not Joseph anymore. It's Jesus' name that every knee will bow to, and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you see, this is our story. We're all guilty of sin. We're all guilty of betrayal. We all have hatred in our hearts, just like the brothers. And it was our sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, was it not? But yet God decided to save us anyway. But once we're saved, we become like Joseph. Kind of gets flipped. We're the ones that God has redeemed from the pit, aren't we? We are the ones who have been resurrected and saved from certain death. We are the ones who, through Christ, now are able to overcome the world. We have overcome the world in Him, and we do. And brothers and sisters, God does not save us and grant us victory in the world just so that we can have it. But rather, He saves us and He grants us victory in the world so that we can become a blessing 
to others. We are to be like Joseph, storing up food so that in times of famine we can redeem the world. But how do we do this? How do we get here to this place? Friends, God has given us a work to do in the world. There are certain spheres of influence that each one of us have and work and move and exercise authority. And the way we do that, again, is by submitting to authority. And for those of us who are younger, kids and teenagers, you have parents that God has set over you, and you're to obey them. They're going to train you, and they're going to teach you about God and what His will is for your life in every area. You're going to have teachers that are going to teach you things that are most basic so that when you go out there into the world, you know how to handle things, and you're going to have to submit to those teachers, and later on you're going to get jobs, and you're going to have bosses that you have to submit to, and then when you get in that place, you can begin to exercise some of your Christian influence there. But now God is training you, and He's preparing you now, even during this time, for all of that. And I'll tell you right now, sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes you'll have bosses that want to take advantage of you. And you'll have jobs that don't work out. And relationships that are no good for you. That are unhealthy for you. But you have to keep learning and working and submitting to the Lord. And eventually He'll grant you victory and wisdom and more and more responsibility in the world so that you can become a blessing to your family, to your job, to your friends, and to your communities. But you have to press on. Little by little, God will give you victory. And that goes for every one of us. Those who are older and who are more settled and for those of us who have careers, or maybe some of us are even retired, God has given each one of us a sphere of influence in our lives. And we may go through trying times. There's going to be those dead loved ones that we have to mourn. There's going to be suffering and loss. There's going to be the afflictions that keep coming and the diseases that just seem like they won't go away. There will be pain and loss. And it'll seem like we're always in the pit. We're always in the prison of suffering. We just have to remain faithful to God, submitting ourselves to Him in that situation that He's placed it in. No matter what it is, no matter what what it looks like, we're there and we're to not be complaining. We're to be listening and learning Because in all these things, God is teaching us and He's granting us wisdom so that when He delivers us out of them, we might have the experience to minister to those who are going through some of the same things. And this happens in many ways. Sometimes God will give us monetary gains. Sometimes God will put us in a place where we're financially stable so that we're able to bless others and we're able to bless the world around us. Or maybe it's during these times that God takes our spiritual gifts And He's beginning to hone them and He's cultivating them and He's making us exercise them so that we might be better at using them so that when those who come up and need us to minister to them, we're able to effectively do that. And in these these ways, we're able to become a blessing to the church and to the world. We can minister to them the redemption that Christ has ministered to us can be in a place to deliver them, to counsel them, to encourage them, to befriend them, to provide for them. God will give us this ability, but we must keep laboring faithfully under His Lordship. 
We must be like Joseph, and we must trust that no matter what our surrounding circumstance may look like, God is with us in it. He has brought us to it, and He will bring us out of it. And in due time, if we are faithful, He will set us over it with the experience and the wisdom to help others through these things when the opportunity comes. So Joseph's story is a story of blessing through tragedy. It is the story of Christ saving the world through His suffering. It's our story. So let us embrace it, for it is the narrative of our lives.